You're listening to No Borders Media. In this audio dispatch, we get background analysis and perspective on the current nationwide prison strike taking place all over the USA and elsewhere between August 21st and September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica Rebellion 45 years ago. Incarcerated prisoners across the USA declared a nationwide strike in response to the deaths of seven prisoners during a riot at a maximum security prison in South Carolina this past April. The prison strike is demanding, among other things, humane living conditions, access to rehabilitation, sentencing reform, and an end of modern-day slavery. A previous strike in 2016 involved upwards of 24,000 prisoners in 24 states. To get more information about the current prison strike, No Borders Media spoke with L. Jones, a supporter of the current protest by prisoners at the Burnside Prison near Halifax, Nova Scotia, as well as Brooke Terpstra, a member of the Oakland, California chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, one of the main organizing groups of the current prison strike. We hear from L. in Halifax first, followed by Brooke in Oakland. These interviews were recorded on August 26, 2018, by Jaggi Singh for No Borders Media. I'm speaking with L. Jones, who is one of the outside support people for the Burnside prisoners who are supporting the current prison strike. L., welcome to No Borders Media. Thank you. L., since uh, last week, a prison strike, a nationwide prison strike, the nation being the United States, has been undertaken. There have been a variety of actions to highlight um, basically the, the slave conditions and the legalized slavery that occurs in the United States. And but one of one of the um, support groups uh, or one of the uh, prisons that have supported this prison strike has been in uh, near Halifax, the Burnside Prison. So can you talk about what the prisoners in Burnside have been doing in support of this prison strike? So the prisoners in Burnside released a statement uh, on August 19th. Uh, really, so they got me a statement that I then printed. And in that statement, they identified that they are unified together. They interestingly identify that they understand the staff are also facing injustice. So they express solidarity with the frontline workers who are also working class people working within the system. And then they say that, you know, we are being warehoused as inmates, not treated as human beings. So they assert um, their need for rights and their, their right to rights. And then they list demands. So they, they had 10 demands, um, including stuff like access to rehabilitation programs, access to fresh air, like air circulation, um, healthier food. Um, exercise equipment, so very, very basic, basic demands that they made. Um, in subsequent reporting, it um, turns out that all of these demands were things they were promised and had been denied. So the demands are very, very simple demands, and stuff that in many ways are entitled to under the Corrections Act, and also important to acknowledge is that stuff they had been told they would be getting, because if we rewind this story a bit, um, Burnside, the Central Nova Scotia Correctional Institution, has been under... Um, a construction. So they have put, it, the reports vary, but apparently about $7 million into renovating this jail. So this is where we put our money, right? Think what you could do with that money if it was put into communities. But, um, you know, $7 million to renovating to go to this direct supervision model, um, which is a model where the guards are on the, the ranges all the time, every day, um, all day with the prisoners. Um, when done properly, this model can be a successful model, but the problem is it's never instituted properly. So you have the same problems at Toronto South, um, so there's always, it's not introduced correctly, and then, of course, it becomes, well, you just can't work with these prisoners. They're like animals, or in fact, what's happened is, is just a mess in how they're doing it. So you see a lot of the same problems in uh, Burnside. So leading up to this um, statement, for example, a lot of people had to be transferred around the province because they're constructing the jail. They shut down a lot of the ranges, and people are being transferred hours 
from their homes. And one of the things that came along with that is long-distance phone charges. So we have this Telmate system that's in many, many provinces uh, based in the United States that charges exploitive fees to people to make calls. So when they're making calls from prisons that are two hours away, those calls are $7 for 20 minutes plus 30% service charges makes one call about $10. So you can imagine for families living on assistance, for anybody, um, that is incredibly expensive. So they had done a petition last year saying that, you know, the phone call should be free or should be affordable and to end exploitive phone fees. So these are some of the issues that they were already organized around and around being transferred. And, of course, what happens when they're transferred is they're also in other facilities that have different, um, like, resources. So in Northeast, for example, which is like the new jail, they do have access to a library and they do have exercise equipment and they, they have some of these things. They have a different menu. They have access to halal food, you know, and then they're coming back into Burnside and they don't have those things, and they're being told that they can't be provided with them. So that's some of the background um, that shows you how much of this goes to policy in the province and, and, and just a complete disregard for, um, you know, like any kind of humanity or rights. So we, then when they're, they're moving to this model, they actually um, apparently are meeting with the prisoners and telling them, we want this to go smoothly, so tell us what you need. Give us your input. So they give a bunch of input, and they're told and promised that they will have things. And then they come on to the new ranges, and nothing's there. So this is one of the things that sparks them doing this statement, that they, when they look at the position they're in, um, they're also, by the way, facing body scanners. So they install new body scanners, and then they ask for information on the scanners, did not receive them. And then when they refused the scans, they were put into segregation. Um, and that, many lawyers think, is, is illegal. Um, it's a misuse of the Segregation Act. Um, the guards have recently admitted that they don't even know how to use the scanners, and they can't tell contraband from your intestines. Um, like, they can't tell if you're constipated, for example, versus if you have something. Um, so it's really not a system that's working well, and then people are being put in indefinite segregation if they don't want to go through the scan. So these are the kinds of violations that we're seeing and the kinds of poor implementation policy. So when they looked at what they could do, um, this is really where the prison strike arises, you know, that they, they decide, you know, we, we're not going to be violent, we're not going to um, disrupt the jail, we're going to try and get our demands out and, and ask the public, because they're the ones that have the freedom. You know, in there, anything they do, they can be locked down, they can be transferred, they can be sentenced, they can be given street charges, all kinds of stuff, and of course, we on the outside don't face that risk. So that's a really, but the big piece of what they asked for was, we're going to tell you what's happening and we ask you to carry it forward. So that is a lot of background to where that statement came from and some of the issues. Of course, these are ongoing issues. It's certainly not just something that arises from the construction or scanners. These issues have been going on for years and years and years and years, way back. Um, anybody who's advocated with people who have been in Burnside knows that these are long-term standing problems. Of course, problems in prisons across Canada and jails across Canada. And again, something that people do not pay any attention to often deliberately, um, this is how corrections works, that we don't have a lot of access into these spaces. Um, and of course, one of the things that I think is important during the strike is for journalists to ask themselves, you know, why is it that we don't have access? Why is it that we can't get people on the phone? Why is it that we can't get stories from people? Why do we have this whole system and we have no access to know what's going on inside it and how is that okay? Well, the, um, the prison strike in the U.S. Uh, is undertaking a variety of actions. And it, uh, you know, from from sit down strikes to to shutdowns, uh, and there are severe consequences for that. I know that both the demands and the actions of the the supporters of the prison strike at Burnside near Halifax are a lot more modest. That's even written into the letter that their demands are more modest. But at the same time, there have been consequences. So can you talk about the consequences for 
for these prisoners self-organizing and, and, and standing up to make these demands? Well, one of the interesting things is um, the staff is not pleased with the move to direct supervision. So the staff has been involved in the labor action um, because they also feel that the implementation of these policies has been lacking and that they're in danger as a result. Um, so as the prisoners are uh, banding together and basically demanding their rights, and again, like very basic rights, this isn't, they didn't even ask for stuff like an end of segregation. They, they really chose things that are doable. That was one of their goals, like stuff that... They actually had been told they could have stuff that existed in other jails, stuff that could be implemented, and they just started there. Um, and the staff also, at the same time, is saying, yes, like these policies are hurting us. We have this kind of interesting thing in this particular situation where both the staff and the prisoners are really recognizing a mutual injustice coming from provincial policy and from corrections. Um, so the staff basically refused to work on their ranges. So they had been locked down for 23 hours a day, so they were locked down for over a week while this was happening. Um, and because they had come into new ranges while this is happening, um, they've reported, for example, that they had no working toilets in certain cells, toilets didn't flush, uh, they had no running water, they weren't able to get clean clothes, they weren't able to get bedding in many cases. Um, so just, they hadn't been taken outside, they hadn't even gone to the gym, they hadn't received a single program. So while this is going on, they were basically just crammed into this area and, and, and with nothing, nothing available. So nothing they'd been promised and even the things that, basic things like having a toilet um, they didn't have. So uh, this is the kind of deprivation level of rights we are talking about that give rise to this statement. Al, I wanted to mention some of these demands just so our listeners understand just how, well, how reasonable <laughs> these demands are. Clearly rooted, rooted in, in a prison strike is to abolish the prison industrial system. But in the meantime, there's the practice of harm reduction and, and also treating people with dignity. So the demands include better health care, rehabilitation programs, exercise equipment, contact visits, meaning that there's not a barrier between uh, your loved ones and yourself during a visit, personal clothing and shoes, quality food, uh, air circulation, uh, a better, uh, healthier canteen so people can get uh, uh, healthier products, no limits to visits, access to a library. So these seem... Uh, eminently reasonable, but uh, speak about the possibility of, of, of reaching these demands. Clearly, uh, a one-off prison protest and strike might not be able to do it, but this is part of long-term organizing. So, so talk about getting these demands met, not just at Burnside, but um, for some of these demands, these would apply to, or most of these demands, they would apply to every single prison in the Canadian state. So I think one thing is that we um, should really recognize how strategic the choice of demand was. So it's not like, for example, they're not aware about solitary confinement. They had been solitary confined, many of them, um, before they wrote these demands. It's not like they're not aware about things like overcrowding or lack of access to remand. I mean, the, the, we have the highest remand rates in the province, like lack of access to bail. These are all things they could have raised, but um, what they chose to do was go with the most basic demands. And I think that was a very strategic move on their part because it is stuff that can be done. So the failure to do it, and it's stuff they had been told would be done, and stuff that is available in other jails. So stuff that certainly is possible. And I think all those things really show um, the point they're making about prisoner rights. That even this, this stuff that they're guaranteed in the Corrections Act, like half an hour of fresh air a day, and they're not getting. Um, stuff they've been told to their faces that they would receive. Stuff that the staff supports them receiving. And yet they are still fighting for that. So I think it's a very strategic choice. So we shouldn't in that sense see these demands as less radical. Um, what we should see them as is a, a particularly strategic placement of demands in a, a battle for prison abolition and obviously a battle for prisoners' rights. 
Um, but, yeah, um, I mean, what can you say about these demands? So, for example, they talk about contact visits. So not having your children come and see you and have to talk to you on a phone through glass. And one of the arguments they've made is since they're being scanned, there's no risk of contraband being passed at visits, so why can't they have visits, which are available in other jails? Um, they have said, you know, like they're the, one of the only jails that has uh, limits on their list, so they can only have a certain amount of people on their list. Again, we have extremely high rates of remand. Um, remand rates have gone up 192% in the last decade, and we have one of the highest remand rates in Canada. Um, people are supposed to be waiting, you know, under Jordan rules, it's supposed to be 18 months for trial in provincial and two and a half years for trial in Supreme. But, of course, with delays and lawyer switches, there's people in Burnside that have been, you know, waiting five years for trial. And in that time, they are not allowed to make changes to their visitor list. So people have died in their families, and they can't change those people on their list, or they can't get to have their aunt visit them when their mother's died. Um, so situations like that that they're talking about. Um, they're talking about... Um, canteen lists that both don't have healthy food, so are just filled with junk food, and also they don't have things like a halal menu. Um, there's a Hindu prisoner I heard about who has had spinal damage because he has a vegan diet, and they're literally giving him, like, slices of bread and oatmeal, <laughs> and that's what he's eating. So he became um, very injured, and when he went to the doctor, the doctor said that his spine had degenerative damage from lack of nutrients. I mean, this is the sort of stuff we're talking about. When we're talking about healthcare. There's a woman who had a high-risk pregnancy that was forced to sleep in segregation without her mattress, and she lost that baby later. Um, we're talking about people not being able to get access to medications they need, like psychiatric medications, um, even basic medications like Tylenol for a headache. If you have a yeast infection, you can't get anything for that because you can't just go to the pharmacy and line up. It takes weeks to get scanned. So people have broken bones, have got concussions, and not seen a doctor or not had an appointment for two to three weeks. People being shackled when they're going to appointments. When they're going to prenatal appointments and having to wear the orange jumpsuit so they don't want to go because they're not going outside like that. So they refuse their appointments and don't get the treatment they need. Um, you know, you can go on and on and on about the healthcare demands. Rehabilitation programs. So a lot of people, of course, um, the constant thing you see is, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't commit the crime. And they're prisoners. What do they expect? You know, so there's constant myth-making we have that, you know, prisons are these places of luxury, and I wish I could go to prison, like, I have to pay for my food, you know, which just isn't the reality of what's happening in prison. And, in fact, you have people saying, like, we want to better ourselves. We want these programs. We, we want to know how to have healthy relationships and to manage our finances, and, and we want to work, and we want to be supporting our families. We don't want to be sitting here with our families having to take care of us and send us in money, and then we have nothing to do all day, and we can't even read a book. Um, you know, that's not something that they, they want. And so they're saying, you know, if we're here, we're supposed to be rehabilitated, so why don't we have the programs we need? Why don't we have the proper care for addictions? Why don't we have proper care for mental health? Why are we getting programs that aren't helping us in our lives? So these are just some of the things they're asking for, again, to better themselves, to work on themselves, to heal. Um, air circulation. So there was a heat wave, of course, in many provinces, including in Nova Scotia across the summer, and the jail was stifling. Um, and again, for people with, with health problems like high blood pressure, diabetes, um, elderly people, that can be deathly. And people do die in custody and do die in these conditions. So when we talk about healthcare in prison, we're not just talking about um, something minor. You know, we know that there's multiple deaths in custody that happen and then go uninquired and no changes happen. Um, so this, these are life and death matters. Um, the clothing, you know, that they don't, they're not being given shoes. The people have gone weeks, you know, the people have been, again, in there for five years and had the same pair of shoes the whole time. So, um, you know, when we're talking about this, I think the hardest thing is that there's so many people out there that want to imagine that we punish people in prison 
um, in vindictive ways. You know, that the, they can't understand that the punishment is the loss of liberty. They want it to be something else. And this is this group of people that, you know, think that people shouldn't have TVs or shouldn't have a radio or should, you know, somehow be on a bread and water diet or maybe we should bring out corporal punishment or whatever it is that they want to do to torture people, which we do not sentence people to. Um, and this is, of course, the challenge, right, that people really believe that prisoners should not have health care and health care is a right. Um, so just the basicness of this demand, the idea that you can put out this list of demands and there's people out there that really think they're not deserving of breathing um, shows you the really shocking state of, of prisons and the shocking state of the public's knowledge of those prisons and, of course, the very successful propaganda campaign we've all been subjected to since birth with, you know, like police shows on TV, um, the myth that everybody who commits a crime who's in jail is guilty, the myth that everybody in jail is violent, the myth that, you know, people are monsters, and that even if you do commit violence, you can't change, you can't fix harm, or we don't have other ways of creating accountability. Um, all of those things play into this narrative. So um, that's the challenge, right? That uh, it's very, very hard to get people to care about people who are in prison and to believe that they are human beings. And you're really fighting at that basic level to get people to acknowledge that they are human Al, one, one last question, and it has to do with, with the self-organizing of prisoners. And, of course, you're, you're on the outside supporting people on the inside, and it's not easy, especially when people are under lockdown, to get interviews with people on the inside. And part of their demands is the ability to, you know, to talk and engage with people by phone or through visits. But could you speak to, to the self-organizing of prisoners at Burnside, uh, how that looks like, what, what you're able to share about it? As you've, as you've underlined here, it's the people who are directly implicated and directly affected by this injustice who are the ones who, who, who step up and, and fight back, and that's what this prison strike in North America is all about. So could you, could you give us a sense of what that self-organizing has looked like? How long ago did people start, start talking about this and, and the challenges for that kind of organizing? So obviously the challenges are the incredible risk. They can be transferred at any time. Anything that's deemed a security risk can result in a facility being locked down, people being transferred, people being put into deep segregation. Um, people who may be facing sentences, of course, um, can have that brought up in their cases, right, that they disrupted the system, that they don't accept corrections. These are all things that show up in your parole reports and can prevent you from getting parole in a timely manner. Um, there's actually a prisoner in a federal prison out here in Spring Hill who's been hunger striking for a week and a half um, because his rights are being denied and he's being subjected to racist and unjust treatment. Um, so these are very, very serious issues when they organize. Um, of course, the system is set up for them not to organize. It's set up, up for us to not know what's going on and to not have access and for them to be divided and not organized. Of course, any organizing is a threat to the system. Um, so what they've been doing now, which has been very, very strategic, um, being very... Um, they've emphasized over and over again that this is peaceful, you know, that there's things that they could be doing. They could be refusing to lock up. They could be sitting in. They could be doing these things. And they've chosen not to do those things because they've taken the strategy of showing that, you know, they can do this in this particular way um, by releasing these statements and by asking us on the outside to participate. And, of course, we know that the minute anybody did anything, whatever that was, it would immediately become that they're violent, that they're creating unrest. So they have to walk a very, very fine line um, where they, and you know, they direct challenges to the system will result in them being absolutely shut down and buried under the jail. Um, so it's, it's difficult for them, um, and they show a lot of courage. And one of the things in prison organizing is that people have to make these choices. So often people experience this injustice on the inside, and then once they get out, it's very hard for people to continue to organize on the matter because of the stigma of having a criminal record, because people want to move on, the trauma of what's happened. So it's very hard to build this for people, but 
when you see it being built, and of course it exists all across Canada, like so many people who have been in prison, former prisoners, are again at the forefront of this work and the experts in this, this work. Um, but everybody who does it faces just incredible risk in their personal lives, in you know people knowing that they're a so-called criminal, um, the kind of comments they get about themselves, and of course the risks from the institutions themselves. So um, it, it's not easy uh, for something like that statement to get out. I've you know, I'm not going to say how I got it, you know, but but it's it, it's difficult, you know, that um, calls are monitored. They know exactly who's talking to who. Uh, they can ban anybody on the outside that's participating. I'm sure, for example, that my phones are watched and everything, my calls are watched. Um, and, and yeah, I, so I, I, I always have to talk to them about that and worry about that. And they're, they're so courageous, you know, that every conversation is me saying, are you sure you want to do this? Like, what if they identify you? Uh, da, 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 you know, and them saying, no, it's the right thing to do. So um, I think they just show incredible, incredible courage in the face of not only, of course, state reprisal, but the public's attitudes towards them, um, knowing that there's people out there that just think they're animals and speaking anyway. So I just have so much love and admiration for what they're doing. Um, I'm honored to be somebody that they have relied upon to get their message out and to be able to speak for them. I'm honored to be in that position, and I'm humbled by it. L. Jones, who has been speaking with us about the current uh, prison strike, specifically the supporters of the prison strike at the Burnside Prison near Halifax, Nova Scotia. Thanks for speaking with us on No Borders Media. Thank you so much. That was L. Jones, a supporter of the current protest by prisoners at the Burnside Prison near Halifax. For more perspective on the current prison strike, we speak with Brooke Tripstra, a member of the Oakland, California chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, one of the main organizing groups of the current prison strike. I'm speaking with Brooke Terpstra. Brooke is a member of the Oakland chapter of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committees, which is a nationwide movement tied to the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Brooke, thank you for taking the time to speak with us on No Borders Media. Ah, thanks for having me. Brooke, this month has been the start of a nationwide prison strike. There was a prison strike in 2016, which at the time was described as the largest prison strike to take place in, in U.S. history. The lineage of that goes right back to Attica 45 years ago. So could you talk about the historical lineage of these prison strikes that are organized by prisoners themselves and uh, where the current prison strike of 2018 came from? Sure. So the prisoners' movement inside goes through waves. Um, the last um, major wave was during the late 60s and early 70s and on through the 70s which saw it essentially parallel outside radical movements, outside social movements, and civil rights movement. Um, basically a tide of increased political activity, increased political unconsciousness uh, on the inside, you know, as uh, struggle, you know, was pursued on the outside. Recently, um, between then and now, there has, there has been an industrialization of incarceration, an increasing reliance on surveillance, policing, and uh, prisons to maintain social control. It saw a prison building boom within the 90s and the late 80s in this country. Our incarceration capacity, which has been fully exploited, is enlarged anywhere from eight to 10 times what it was when George Jackson was assassinated in 1971. This is seen uh, in response 
uh, prisoners movement arise in this country again. Um, the dates in its present phase, two were dating essentially back to 2010 and a little before. 2010 saw coordinated work stoppages break out in Georgia. Um, multiple facilities across Georgia simultaneously engaged in uh, work strikes. Um, this was quickly taken up in succession by four other states um, after the Georgia was put down. Um, then in 2011, we saw a hunger strike in California by, any, by a small group of prisoners within what's called the Security Housing Unit. We have supermax prisons here in California um, that essentially also have prisons within prisons. Secure housing units are essentially uh, solitary for life, set up for long-term isolation and torture. They would essentially warehouse uh, prisoners that they deemed security threats or folks they needed to sequester and also use it as a form of ultimate discipline within the system. Prisoners undertook a hunger strike in California in 2011, and then another, and then another, and then in 2013 saw a 30,000 uh, prisoner deep uh, hunger strike take place that essentially resulted in the Todd Asker versus California uh, settlement, which changed the terms of solid confinement. Then in 2014, 2015 saw the rise of more prisoner movements in the South primarily, but in many of the states. Um, it's also fueled by, by cell phones, their ability to coordinate and talk with each other, and also uh, take in media from the outside world. Prisoners in the states are allowed a very small you know, window of available material to read. Many, it's not uh, dangerous material, whatever the state might dictate that's uh, not allowed, but simply ideas. During the previous phase of the prisoners' movement, prisons were essentially being turned into universities for uh, radical and liberatory movements. People would study, had political education groups. They cut all this material, and cell phones have, have fueled the availability of many more materials and their ability to communicate with each other. 2014 and 15 saw coordinated strikes using uh, whatever means of communication available to them um, across Alabama and then Texas, and then on the basis of the IWW and IWOC's involvement with the Texas coordinated work stoppages in 2016, um, leadership within some of these states reached out to IWOC to help coordinate a nationwide prison strike, essentially to enlarge the level of, you know, the level of coordination. There are uh, constant prison you know, uprisings in this country. There are constant strikes. This strike is just a very uh, supported and coordinated and uh, broadcast strike with aspirations to take it to other states and uh, also use the media to get uh, examples of their resistance into prisons where the word might not have, ha might not have reached yet. That's essentially the arc of the present prisoners movement. Each wave of activity and each successive uh, action uh, in some way draws on the legacy and actions immediately preceding it. Because you could see how the pattern went from individual states to, or individual facilities, even to multiple facilities, then to states, then to multiple states, then to nationwide. 
and we've also seen a depth and sophistication of uh, of tactics being deployed. In 2016, the call was merely for people to stop work. And this was being put out primarily by prisoners in the South, where work, uh, like forced labor, is uh, really widespread. Um, and prisoners are allowed to basically uh, live together in dormitories in, in many of these places and have some contact with each other. In many other states, there, there isn't much labor. Work is actually sought as an opportunity to get out of isolation. Many states have systems where it's the norm that you spend 20 to 22 hours locked up in a cell where re recreation time or yard time, as it's called, um, may or may not come every other day or even, you know, in a week. So essentially jobs are sought, uh, one, to basically get out of one cell because it's an extremely small supply or even as means of uh, supplying yourself with the basic materials of life. Not much is supplied to prisoners anymore inside. Sometimes you have to buy your own blankets, your own shower shoes, soap, um, not to mention the caloric intake and the food intake is extremely restricted and often designed for lethargy and ill health. So people have to basically earn money in order to supplement you know, their food intake, their basically ability to eat. So this time around, uh, realizing not many prisoners had a work you know, assignment to uh, stop, they and that uh, many different prisons have different contexts and different um, levels of repression or retaliation, and that prisoners essentially had to pick their own uh, way to strike. Um, the tactics called for were, you know, a work stoppage, of course, or um, a sit-in or a demonstration, which is often called a refusing movement, um, which prisoners can do even in uh, solitary or administrative segregation, as it's called. Um, you can actually refuse movement uh, with, you know, in your in your units because um, you're basically moved sometimes to uh, administrative offices or showers, and sometimes prisoners will do what they call ride the bench, where prisoners will be let out of their solitary units and then basically refuse to move and sit on the bench in the middle of their pod or dormitory. And we've, we've gotten reports of prisoners doing that right now, and essentially from solitary, uh, collectively acting to shut down whole units. Um, and also available action was boycotts for all the prisoners that don't, you know, have a job. Uh, they can just refuse money to like spend on the exploitive, you know, prison vendors that sell them, you know, grotesquely inflated prices, priced, uh, you know, foodstuffs and hygiene items. So boycotts, you know, sit-ins, uh, work stoppages and hunger strikes as well. Sometimes prisoners don't even have money to take away uh, from commissary. I have an indigent uh, contact within a facility that has no work assignment here in California, is in a wheelchair, who uh, of course is not given a job um, and he's participating by hunger striking. So in the arc of the prisoners movement, we've seen a, a, a deepening of tactics, uh, also a deepening of a negotiation between different prisoner formations uh, to essentially coordinate and uh, negotiate sets of demands. The set of demands you have in your hand probably uh, is distilled down from over you know, 30 demands that were initially put forth. And they were basically arrived at um, by a coalition of different formations inside and chosen for their um, essentially common nature and their essential nature. 
that all prisoners could relate to. Brooke, that's an incredibly thorough answer related to the, the, the history of the current prison strike, like the, as you put it, the current arc or the arc of, uh, of um, organizing that, that inspired the current prison strike. But going even further back, uh, I know that you know, within my trajectory as, a, as an organizer, people talked more and more about the prison industrial complex in the 80s and 90s as it was clear that the so-called war on drugs and other policies was basically criminalizing people uh, for overwhelmingly nonviolent offenses, but even, even for violent offenses, it was, it was over-the-top criminalization. That results in the situation that we have today where the U.S. has the largest prison population in the world and the largest per capita prison population in the world. It's a, it's a stat that needs to be put out there more and more because people have become inoculated from it. But I know that um, people are not just talking about the prison industrial complex uh, alone. They're talking about the prison industrial slavery complex. And it's something that even myself, someone I, I consider myself someone to be relatively well-informed, didn't quite appreciate that when the 13th Amendment was brought in, in as the Civil War was ending uh, to abolish slavery legally, it actually entrenched another form of slavery, which is the fact that the 13th Amendment doesn't apply to people who are incarcerated. So people are now talking about the prison yeah. industrial slavery complex, and that seems to be a focus of this current strike. So can you can you talk about that aspect of things? I know we know about the prison industrial complex and the U.S. being uh, a country that just is, is out of control when it comes to incarceration, where in other jurisdictions people would find other means to deal with what what amounts to basically offenses that you know people can be re- rehabilitated from. Uh, talk about the slavery aspect of things. Absolutely. Um Yes, and also I'll preface my remarks by saying, too, that within IWOC, uh, there are a breadth of different analyses and um, takes and understandings of the struggle. Um, so what I'll be offering here is definitely a popular or like a well-represented analysis within IWOC, but not the official position. Because so I think I need a little personal latitude in order to address this uh, thoroughly. Um, absolutely. Uh, this extends not only back to uh, slavery, um, where essentially the 13th Amendment simply modified a form of social control and captivity um, for, for like new material conditions and a new political economic situation post-Civil War. But some even date this, this struggle like 400, 500 years old. This essentially is a struggle against a white settler colonial state. And the forms of captivity have never really, you know, been abandoned, but modified for, for changing material conditions and social terrain. Now, you know, society changes and uh, basically resistance, you know, shifts, like the terms and codifications of how they basically enact this uh, social control and brutality or even genocide against kidnapped Africans and indigenous and indigenous descended individuals can essentially be understood best within the lens of settler colonialism. Now, which is how uh, in the present like moment too, we can also understand the relation between the abolish ice or um, the uh, occupy ice uh, upswell of the immigrant detention networks, which are like mislabeled immigrants. These are indigenous descended people that are being targeted. 
It is not immigrants from Europe or other countries that are the principal target, but indigenous descended, like so-called Mexicans, Central Americans, and South Americans, and uh, Caribbean peoples and Haitians that are being targeted. So they're targeting essentially uh, swaths of the population that have always been targeted for subjugation, you know, targeted for exploited labor, for dehumanization, and control, if not total extermination. Now, in the Amendment 13 uh, forced the issue of outright ownership of, of people as animals, like of people as, as fungible, as collectible objects, you know, pieces of commerce, you know, which is inevitably tied to, to blackness, you know, and indigeneity. They, they sought to own and exploit, you know, at first indigenous and then, you know, kidnapped African populations, diasporic peoples. Now, there were, in the present moment, there's, you said that uh, in the 70s, that essentially, and then in the 80s, that the drug war criminalized nonviolent offenses. I kind of want to add some nuance to that. And it's actually affirmed by uh, now released statements by the Nixon administration that initiated the rhetoric on war on drugs, that what they were not criminalizing was, was drug use. They were seeking an avenue of, of moral legitimacy to essentially criminalize blackness and dissent within this country. They overtly sought to control an insurgent, you know, black population. Uh, they sought a greater free hand to lock up and demonize uh, black power movement, as well as a politicized white radical subculture. And Nixon's aides, I think Ehrlichman or Haldeman was recently came out and said, you know, absolutely, that's exactly what we did, and then quoted them. Um, these were means that are essentially, you know, created and that the nonviolent offenses are, you know, being criminalized are essentially committed by almost all of the population, except that it's only one that is essentially policed for it. You know, it's, it, it is the underclass. It is those that are pushed to the bottom of the pyramid. It's essentially those same diasporic African peoples and indigenous and indigenous descended folks that are locked up this way in this industrial fashion. Now, in, there are different theories as to why this massive industrial system arose or what pushed it, but essentially it's a means of disciplining and dehumanizing a vast swath of the population. You know, more than the 2.3 million, that's the figure that's often thrown about, and that's the number of people currently like in a cage, you know, in, a, in the United States. Um, there are vast numbers of people also, uh, you know, with convictions that wear ankle bracelets or are on probation, who are basically uh, forced to increase surveillance to where a probation officer can come into their home. And there are also millions upon millions of people, like 11 million people are churned through our county jails. So approximately 24 million people in the United States um, have per year um, are either locked up or have contact, you know, at any one time with the you know, so-called criminal justice system. Now, this is a vast disciplinary network, you know, that essentially keeps whole communities and whole populations, uh, you know, like taking away breadwinners in a constant state of trauma, constantly destabilized, constantly having to deal not only with, like, how you carry the trauma and deal with it, but also the early potential of all these people taking away. The, how can you build or defend a community when at any time, 
uh, like a vast chunk of your community is inside, you know, being tortured in a cell. Um, I recently saw a figure that one out of every four black women in the United States right now has a family member inside prison. Now, in the present period, we have, uh, they kind of hit a limit. Um, prison population inside uh, plateaued, or at least capacity to incarcerate, uh, plateaued in 2012, 2013, kind of depending on what state you're in. And it's kind of uh, hit a limit. And also the moral legitimacy of the drug war has been seriously damaged in recent years. It's basically losing that cachet for, for a variety of reasons. Also, we have kind of the entry of uh, big cultural moments with like uh, 13th, a movie that made uh, a big impact in the United States. Also, the book, The New Jim Crow. Now, neither of them a perfect analysis. Um, also, like any one author or director, of course, has a point of view and presents their own. But taken symptomatically, um, incarceration is undergoing uh, and then the whole so-called justice system is undergoing a reevaluation. Now, in the present moment, the prisoners are inserting themselves as a voice within this cultural moment, within this process. These diasporic and indigenous descended and African peoples, black, as well as uh, trans folks who are the, in terms of populations, have the largest per capita incarceration rate of any uh, social group out there, are, are rising up to insert themselves into this process of reevaluation. Now, in terms of its direct relation to, quote, slavery, um, let's just say here that uh, slavery is not just about extracted labor from uh, Africans. It is about a whole state of dehumanization. Um, you were regarded a slave uh, pre-1865. Uh, whether or not you could work, you were still owned. You were a tradable object. It was a creation of a different class of, uh, you know, animal, essentially. You are not regarded as human, something to be traded. You are also denied any rights to filial or family connection. You know, you could be bought and sold. And that attack on uh, family connections goes on today in the way they cut visitation, in the way the state intervenes in social relations, in the way children are taken away. We can talk about residential schools. We can talk about adoption rates. We can talk about forced sterilization. You know, these things are still happening. Another aspect of early chattel slavery was being subject to a complete and arbitrary violence at any time. That there was no conditionality to it. There's no, like, option, no way to opt out, no way to behave well to avoid violence. You know, this extends and has never been given up into the present period um, in many ways. In one of the ways it extends is uh, through arbitrary police killings. The more arbitrary uh, they are, you know, whether or not you're holding a phone, or whether you're a child on a playground, or whether you're selling cigarettes on a corner. Um, the point is to kill arbitrarily. Essentially, to be born you know, black in this country is to be born under a death sentence that can be enacted at any time. And if you make it to a natural death, you're one of the lucky ones. So slavery isn't just about extracting labor um, you know, from someone forcefully or denying them pay. Slavery is about the complete state of dehumanization and social death that's visited upon like a vast chunk of the population upon Africans, you know, 
basically kidnapped Africans for the most part. Some people insist upon being called Africans, some say black. But essentially, this is the state has continued. So the amendment of the 13th, uh, I don't think if we took away the 13th Amendment, uh, it would dissolve all these other social relationships and basically power structures that are enforced today. Like every single aspect of chattel slavery continues. And the 13th Amendment didn't change any of this. You know, it simply shifted, you know, the hand that held the whip. You know, it, it nationalized ownership, you know, in that moment of, you know, of African labor. And we see shifts continuing, like the drug war was a, a substantial shift in like how this population would be policed and disciplined. And I think within the current moment, um, I think the United States and all colonial states, you know, these settler colonial states, um, are white supremacist structures. We have a long way to go. Even if prisoners got uh, a minimum wage by some miracle inside for their labor, um, every single other relationship, the violence, the denial of connection to family, the basically dishonoring in, in every single way imaginable, um, the kind of cultural violence that makes it okay to visit all the physical violence upon them, all that would still exist. That's a very kind of long and big answer, but I think it's essential to understanding what we're talking about when we talk about slavery. Brooke, one of the, um, yeah, you, you've alluded to in a previous answer to all the you know, various formations that have taken shape in terms of building the strike, or to get to the moment we are today, you know, within prisons, the different political formations, you know, in the past, I remember the Jericho movement, uh, there's the Free Alabama movement, um, and one relatively recent contribution is the group that you're part of, the um, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, that harkens back, because of its link to the IWW, to uh, a moment, I mean, I think the heyday of IWW. I mean, IWW's been doing organizing ever since, um, uh, but, you know, its heyday was a linkage between immigrant workers, migrant workers, and people who were born in the U.S. organizing together for justice and, and doing so with an uncompromising commitment to Working class solidarity. Working class meaning anybody who who's who's got to survive and work to 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 make it in this society, and the connection between people who are working, whether in slave like conditions or not, within prisons and workers on the outside, is something that is honestly rather unique. So, can you talk about that contribution by IWOC, uh, the um, the incarcerated workers organizing committees? Um. Yeah, it, the IWW definitely had a heyday and then kind of a long fallow period. I think we're kind of in a resuscitation at the moment, kind of dating also to the 90s. But in its heyday, yes, it was, um, it didn't, like many other labor formations, it didn't indulge in this uh, jingoism or this uh, nationalism of true American, you know, and, and immigrant. It also wasn't... Uh, and indulge itself in this kind of a uh, valorization, this kind of holding up of the white, you know, blue collar worker. It was the first, like, one that allowed, it was the first major labor formation that uh, was anti racist, that allowed black membership. Um, I think uh, by accident, somehow within the arc of the 20th century, the IWW. Uh, wasn't uh, modified and beaten down into what most unions are today. Most unions are business unions, are another layer of management, or basically fighting a retreating battle. Um, 
they they don't involve themselves anymore with mass organizing or or class struggle, except in a pocketed, you know, essentially defensive battles for uh, for for contract concessions within limited fields. They basically ceded all political ground and given up social unionism. Because the IWW went through a long fallow period, you know, it always existed in some small form or another, but it wasn't a major player, to be real, you know. So it didn't really receive any of this pressure or um, repression or essentially we've had uh, the whole 20th century was a litany of the state rewarding unions that would cooperate with it and then basically destroying ones that wouldn't. And so what you end up with is the AFL-CIO, you know, and what you don't get is uh, like a big formation like the IWW that will never sign away the right to strike, never sign, will never negotiate with the NLRB, the Labor Relations Board, um, that basically reserves its right as a radical union or a social union. So there's this grooming process where most unions were groomed into impotence or, uh, or nostalgia machines referring to some ascendant labor movement of the past, but you know, sadly, never really engaging in the present in material conditions. So by accident, we were in this pocket of unionism um, that's willing to, you know, organize the unemployed, uh, willing to organize, you know, casual workers, willing to still mass organize in a very performative and kind of social media oriented political moment. We still mass organize. Um, and we also had a number of people in the ranks that had been to prison um, that saw the immediate value of like first, like extending like a uh, membership to prisoners free of cost and reaching out to them. Um, and also recognizing as members of the working class of that strata that basically has to live with prison as a daily reality, whether you're locked up or not, um, when you're part of these communities, it's not just when you're locked up that you live with prison, you live with it 24 seven as a daily aspect of life. Maybe a family member is locked up, but it's always there uh, waiting for you. It's a normal thing. So this, we kind of pull from that uh, layer of society. So it was a natural thing for us to uh, you know, essentially organize prisoners. I mean, especially in this ascendant era, I mean, we're kind of past the, the, the peak of incarceration, but it's plateaued. It's not going away. Um, what we're seeing right now is a kind of transformation of these forms of captivity and social control that I alluded to kind of in that historical uh, answer I gave to your question about slavery. Right now, there's a, a move to essentially, I think, uh, modify you know, the terms and legitimacies and how, you know, this captivity and social control, which is not conceded at all, but is seeking um, a shift, which is why we're seeing, I think, um, moves to reform bail, you know, money bail. We're not going to be locking people up, uh, essentially, for not having money. We'll be putting ankle bracelets on them and essentially increasing incarceration capacity by not giving them a bed inside a facility, but letting them walk around under increased layer of surveillance. I think they're finding ways to essentially incarcerate, you know, whole cities, whole populations without a wall or a fence. 
essentially inverting the prison. Um, I think with mass surveillance, I think the powers that be and material forces are essentially finding ways of more efficiently controlling populations with uh, new technologies. So in this moment, IWOC uh, comes into it and uh, essentially recognizes prisoners as human beings and helps enable their voice on the outside. Now, the IWOC uh, has, uh, you know, one of the biggest, the incarcerated folks that are members of the IWW um, are the largest sector of the union. Um, we definitely have members inside, but of course have limited avenues for collective recognition and actually functioning as groups on the inside. One that's essentially uh, illegal. It's criminalized on the inside to do that. But even so, we have uh, the first prisoner industrial union branch uh, formed in Texas, you know, this last year. Um, they're all in solitary now for it. And they're writing it out until they can get out to function as an industrial union branch. But they came together and formed a union. And incarceration, I mentioned too, is a, basically a part of being working class. It's part of the landscape, especially if you're, uh, you know, black or brown or even like poor white. Um, this is uh, what we have to live with as working class people. And increasingly so within kind of the core of the uh, imperial system, a core of uh, kind of the economy you know, the world economy, that more labor will be redundant, more automated away. Um, people aren't in prison to extract labor out of them in like sweatshops. They're primarily like incarcerated to uh, discipline surplus labor, labor that's no longer deemed necessary or a problem, or if left, you know, basically to partake and live within the communities, could pose a political threat, you know? So I think it's the IWOC's mission is like completely on point in terms of uh, extending a hand and focusing on prisoners' self-organization and enabling it as a reality of working class life. Um, and as like, it's not gonna go away. You know, in the future of the states, well, let's put it this way, the state's not gonna stop relying on incarceration. And it's long been an ignored uh, front of social movements. Many people will speak on reform or policy on the outside or, or so-called criminal justice reform, you know, advocacy organizations. But surprisingly, many of them don't actually speak to prisoners um, or even beyond that, aid them in collectively organizing as a social force, as a force unto themselves that's capable, you know, and conscious and active. Um, and personally, that's why uh, IWOC was very attractive to me, because it recognized this, and our basic approach isn't to organize prisoners. Um, it's prisoners organize themselves naturally and all the time. Um, it's simply IWOC's job to enable it and also put different options on the menu that we might have access to or experience with. Brooke, the current prison strike uh, started on August 21st. It's slated to terminate on September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica, beginning of the Attica uprising 45 years ago at the Attica prison in upstate New York. 
in prefacing this question, I appreciate the point you made earlier, which is that the organizing that's happening is happening every single day. It's not just happening during the strike, but the strike is an opportunity to to maybe converge attention on these issues. So um, with that preface, I wanted you to talk about specifically the kinds of things that have been happening and will be happening, the things that you can share, of course, in the uh, during during this prison strike. It, it will allow listeners to have an understanding of, first of all, the challenges of fucking organizing uh, on the inside in this um, in this mm-hmm. basically form of of of, of surveillance and, and slavery um, that dates right back to you know as you said four to five hundred years of social control, but also uh, some of the inspiring things that that have happened and are happening, and the solidarity that's enabled uh, in those kinds of situations. So to sort of wind up, but you know take the time you need, uh, speak about some of that concentrated organizing that's. that's that's been happening uh, in the past few weeks and will be happening in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, the strike has definitely gotten a lot of attention and it definitely has uh, crystallized people's attention. Um, and, and that noted, uh, most of IWOC's work, I have to say, is like day in, day out. And um, we're here for like long-term work and most of our work is uh, really a grind. Um, we do stuff with, out any of the glamour or attention, like all the time. Um, correspondence is a huge part of the work. Working with, with families uh, is a huge part of the work. Driving people to visit their loved ones inside. Um, engaging in political fights to defend visitation, you know, is a fight. We're involved in fights to close certain uh, facilities to basically uh, chip away at the state's ability to incarcerate people. We're engaged in research. We're engaged in, in, in all this like day to day fights. And we're like one piece of a very big puzzle. So I just wanted to put that out there that even though we're getting a lot of attention in the moment, like we are, you know, newcomers to like the abolition struggle and prison support struggle. And we're like one piece of a very, you know, big movement and every other piece of it is incredibly important and valid. Um, whether it's, you know, people f- actually fighting uh, money bail on an abolitionist stance or closing facilities or, you know, every other piece of the, the work that's being done out there. But the immediate stuff during the strike that's really important. Um, it's right now, it's, we've had to in the past rely on ourselves to be the media, to get the work, the word out. Um, that's a little different this time around because we've gotten this strange onslaught of mainstream media attention. Now, to tell you the truth, we're kind of struggling with because with the increased, uh, basically spread of the news, we also have hostile actors or people that are barely interested or not at all educated at all on the prisoners movement or incarceration or slavery or any of this, like writing on it for the first time. So the narrative is in the hands of really ill-informed people, like reporters that are writing on this for the first time that, that ask us for like, Hey, can we get a video interview with a striker? Not realizing that that's, there are people that did that with contraband cell phones in 2016 that are still in the hole, like two years later for doing that. And 
not realizing that the prisons control all aspects of communication in life, but even just communicating ideas over a state surveilled phone. Um, the imam just went, got one of the most recognized figures with a lot of support. Even him got thrown basically into a deeper level of solitary and had all his communication privileges taken for a year. So on the first is the one, like there's always this call and it's kind of cliche, but educate yourself and in the long term, you know, read the longer piece. Don't read the shorter piece. Um, there's a lot to convey here. Cause it's, I mean, m most of the population in the United States, uh, well, I don't even know if it's most, but the, the chunk that that actually knows about prison life, that actually lives with it as a daily reality and policing, um, there's already like a vast reservoir of knowledge. What we're struggling with now are all the people that haven't been locked up, namely like uh, a large chunk of the white population and the middle class. And, and of course, all the narrative class, all the media and folks that get to write about it and basically write it for the history books don't know anything about it. So there's an immense educational need at the moment to actually understand. So I would basically exhort people to stop, you know, reading about prisoners or talking about prisoners and start talking to them. Second is defend the strikers and defend all prisoners. Um, every other day, like right now, this during this increased activity, we have uh, phone actions or phone zaps, what they're called. Where essentially we uh, engaged hundreds and sometimes even thousands of people to call prisons where retaliation is, you know, happening and to essentially pressure prison administrations to, uh, stop it, to let people out of solitary, to allow them medical attention or to give them their belongings back or basic things like, um, stop freezing a prisoner to death and put him in a cell with a, with, with a window isn't broken basic things like this. And even though the result is aggregate and visible to us to do the day in and day out work, it's essentially a one-to-one -one payoff. Like five minutes of your time on the phone can directly equate to five minutes of reduced solitary for a prisoner on the inside, or five minutes of medical attention, or even just five minutes of sunlight. And those of us that track the work in aggregate know this to be true. Like phone pressure works. So we'd, we'd ask people to follow our national Twitter account or any other local group that will broadcast these, but they're guaranteed to be broadcast on the national Twitter account, which is at IWW underscore IWOC, IWOC, or just Google it. They're also broadcast on our, on our website and, uh, and on our email listservs. Um, third, um, I don't know, like, what else you could be doing? Um, it's frustrating for a lot of folks because of that. We can't be there directly for prisoners on the inside because of all the fences and walls and the rules and the batons and the guns. But, you know, be a pen pal. I mean, just keeping them psychically and emotionally alive, being some form of contact on the outside is, is a form of solidarity. Um, that, Dehumanizing, you know, people is essentially the goal and tool of the prison system. And doing that, you know, writing to prisoners and being a form of contact is an essential way of keeping them alive. Like, 
helping them endure the, the torture, you know, and the stretch they're doing inside and heal that wound. I mean, and if you want to go beyond that, uh, be there for all the releases outside your local jail. Um, as I mentioned, like millions and millions of people are churned through county jails if they don't, you know, independent of a conviction. And this is a brutalizing, you know, regular uh, form of discipline that the police and the prison systems, you know, wreak upon, you know, wholesale communities and populations. Be there outside when they release them at night. You know, oftentimes county jails are out in the middle of nowhere and they're released in whatever clothes they got, you know, arrested in with no money, uh, no food, uh, recently traumatized anywhere from a day to like two weeks. Um, people have just gone to the corner for cigarettes and then picked up on some traffic ticket. And if you're black in this country, that means you're probably going to jail. And so people come out in their uh, slippers with no clothes, no food, you know, essentially like traumatized inside and, and outside, emotionally and physically, you know, be there for all your releases with a car, with food, with a charged phone, you know, and, and do it for the solidarity and, and, and basically to put yourself between, you know, us and the system. Those, those are the three things I would recommend. Brooke Terpstra, who is a member of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee's uh, uh, the chapter based in Oakland, California. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us on No Borders Media. Sure, my honor. Thank you. You are listening to a No Borders Media interview with Brooke Terpstra of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee in Oakland, California. Previously, we heard from Al Jones about the prisoners' protests at the Burnside Prison near Halifax, Nova Scotia. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggle of communities and resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the very early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.